One of the things that the uh, Wagleys did is um, in this house, they had a Colligan water softener that they were renting. <laughs> I have to say that I'm getting applause and reactions at points I just really didn't expect. That was definitely one of them, but go Colligan, I guess. Anyway, Colligan water softener, and so uh, they were renting this, and so the Colligan water man calls my wife and I up and says he'd like to meet with us and discuss um, the process and what it looks like and the costs and the benefits and everything, and so during the summer, he comes over to our house, and we have this meeting, and for the most part, it's what you expect. He's telling us the benefits of water softeners and all that you can gain by having water softeners, but he's also a retired sheriff. And somehow in the midst of this conversation, we also, in addition to talking about water softeners and their benefits, we started talking about police and um, the death of unarmed black men. We talked about the Black Lives Matter movement and the Blue Lives Matter movement. We talked about um, what the role is in violence in society. And we talked about what this looks like and and how to navigate these difficult waters. Because if you remember in the summer and extending even to now, there have been some horrific, violent episodes that have happened. Um, Both the death of, of, for the most part, black men, but of course many other nationalities as well at the hands of of police officers. Um, But also then in retaliation on some level, there have been assassinations of police officers. It has been a heavy and difficult summer in terms of violence. In most metro areas this summer um, and this year, homicide rates are way up. It has been violent and difficult summer. And in the midst of that, somehow, when we were supposed to be talking about water softeners, go Colligan, right? Um, we ended up talking about all these deep and heavy issues with our Colligan waterman. So if you ever notice that like, the UPS guy drives up to our house and I just kind of scat and just get out of there, it's because I don't want to have a deep and heavy conversation about uh, sexual morality with the UPS guy or you know, whoever, whatever it would be. But you know, these unexpected deep conversations that you'll have. I tell you all of this because at the end of that conversation, as the Colgan waterman was leaving our house, he asked me a question that has gnawed at me since he asked it, and that I think is a good concrete way to approach our passage. Um, Our passage is going to be about a people of peace and what that looks like in the vision in Isaiah 2. But I thought rather than talk in the abstract, this particular example might be a good test case to start with. And he asked me the question, if an armed intruder came into your house and threatened your family, and you had your own gun and you had a clear shot, do you take that shot or not? I'm hearing a lot of responses. A lot of people are like immediate, like, this is a trick question. What's difficult here? Um, I couldn't answer right away. And I realized my audience, I'm going to pause the story right now. I know my audience. I am in rural Kansas right now, right? I am in the land of make my day laws, uh, Second Amendment rights. We're not that far from Texas. I get it. Um, I myself come from Colorado Springs. If you're looking for a better town that is pro-military, anti-government intervention, you know, government keep your hands off my stuff kind of city, that is Colorado Springs. Um, I came from a solid uh, 
family, you know, talking about the Constitution and backing up the exact way the Constitution is written. I went to a conservative Christian high school. I went to a conservative church. Everything in my background should say totally for guns, gun rights, all of those sorts of things. And my wife's family might actually outclass my family in this regard. Um, she's from a farm community in South Dakota. The very first Thanksgiving, I went to meet with her family. Um, after Thanksgiving meal, uh, you didn't sit down and watch football, which is what I thought everyone was supposed to do after Thanksgiving. Um, but instead, we went out and we shot guns. And this is not just the men, mind you. This is men and women. Everyone's out there shooting guns. And I myself had to, they, they gave me a handgun, put the can on the, um, you know, on a fence post. I forget exactly how far away. And they had me shoot it to see if I could shoot the can off. I was able to, and I think I probably wouldn't have gotten to marry my wife if I had missed. Um, <laughs> but I was able to do it. So, like, I tell you this because I come from all the background that should say, of course you shoot in that situation. That person is doing wrong. That person is invading. That person is coming into your house, and you have the not only right, but obligation to protect your family and your home and your material. And yet, I hesitated. And I think I hesitated because the more I've studied the Bible, I feel like the Bible at least makes this question difficult. So let me just tell you, my goal is not to convince you all to be absolute pacifists in every situation in your life, but my goal is to get you to the point by the end here where you can recognize why this would be a question in your mind. Why there isn't just a definite, yes, of course you shoot. Why there has to be some sort of moral wrestling with this question of what to do in a situation like this. So I've set it up enough, I think. Let's read Isaiah 2, 1 through 4, and talk about what it means to be a people of peace as we look at this vision from Isaiah. So this is Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." He shall judge between the nations and shall de decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. So while the focus of our time to this morning will be on verse 4 and this image of swords being beaten into plowshares, we're going to start in verses 1 through 3 and talk about God and his people, the God of peace and the people of peace. And you have to understand that the ancient nation of Judah, which is where Isaiah is, um, 8th century BC at this point, um, they're in a tricky historical place. Um, when we read the Old Testament, it might be easiest for us as Americans who live in a superpower nation to kind of assume that Israel and Judah are in a similar place, but they're not. I think if you want to think through like what it would have been like to be an ancient citizen of Judah, it would have been far more like being part of Poland in 20th century Europe. They were a significant nation, but you had the Germans on one side and the Russians on the other. 
that didn't like each other, were both superpowers, and wanted to fight each other, and that required them to go right through Poland to fight. This was the situation for Judah. At this time, the major nations were Egypt to the southwest and Assyria to the northeast, but the same problem was there. Judah was the only way that the Assyrians and the Egyptians could fight each other, and so their land was naturally being overrun by these two superpowers. And what you might expect from this, in this historical situation where Isaiah would see the Assyrians invade, destroy all but three cities in the land of Judah, and do unspeakable horrors of war to many of his compatriots, you might expect Isaiah to respond in one of two ways. You might either expect resignation, where he says, yeah, these other nations and their gods are greater than ours. Or you might expect that it's just bitterness, where he says, oh, all those other nations are evil. We need to destroy them. They're God-forsaken. They are evil nations. But Isaiah actually does the opposite of both. First, he affirms confidence. Throughout the first part of our passage, we see that the mountain of the Lord will be the highest of mountains, that the nations will come to Jerusalem, shall come to the temple in Jerusalem, and shall seek the Lord and his law. All of these verses at the start are saying basically this. The God of Israel is the only true God. There aren't many gods out there. There aren't many people you can worship. It isn't okay just to pick whichever one you want. The God of Israel, Isaiah is saying, is the only true God. And we are his people. So Isaiah projects confidence, not resignation. But then he doesn't also move to bitterness. He instead goes to opening the door wide to these other nations. He says that the true God can be found by all and that the true people can be joined by all. Now, this is not always the common message in the Old Testament. Many times in the Old Testament, you see more of an emphasis on this being the true people of Israel and being wary of what foreigners and what their influence might do. But a special mark of the book of Isaiah is this often this openness and focus on the other nations around and how they can join the people. And so, for example, in Isaiah 19, Isaiah prophesies that there will be a day when Egypt and Assyria, the two great superpowers that are oppressing Judah, will actually come together and join with Judah in worship of the Lord. Isaiah 56, 6 and 7 promises, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to those who minister to him and love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, these I, God speaking here, I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house, that is the temple in Jerusalem, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Isaiah 42, 6 says simply that Israel will be a light for all nations. Isaiah 2, the passage we're looking at today, is a gem of this type. It's another one that talks about how all nations, despite the evil they've done to Judah, may still come and join with the Lord. Now, how is this to be understood by Christians today? I think this is tricky because ancient Israel and ancient Judah were ethnic people, they were political, they were cultural, they were a religious group, and how do you sort of parse all those things out in the modern world where there isn't one nation selected by God to be God's people? Um, I can tell you that it does not apply directly to the United States of America. I think we have been blessed by God, and I hope that we seek God, but there has never been a time when God has selected any nation in the modern world in the same way he selected the ancient nation of Israel and the ancient nation of Judah. So we can't say this is about America, at least not in a direct sense. The best application, rather, is the church. 
the Christian community gathered together. And in fact, what I think is so interesting is that maybe when we hear these in the latter days, we think it only happens at the very end of time. But this passage is actually realized among us this morning, this day. This passage talked about a time when the peoples would stream to the God of Israel and would praise the God of Israel. And we sang worship songs to the God of Israel 20 minutes ago. It says there will be a day when the nations will come and will learn from the law of the Lord. And right now, as we're learning from these ancient Israelite writings, we're learning from the law of the Lord. We are the fulfillment of this prophecy as we gather here this morning. Maybe not the full fulfillment, but we are a partial fulfillment right now. And it is with a prophecy like Isaiah 2 in mind that Paul envisions the Christian people as a people brought together by the peace of Christ. He says in Ephesians 2, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, you other nations, those who are not Jewish, were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He who has made for us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who are far off, and peace to those who are near. We are the people of peace. We are the initial fulfillment of this prophecy. So what does it look like for us who are people of peace? We want to look at the concept of shalom, the concept of peace, and talk about the two aspects of it. First of all, peace as the absence of violence. This is what we normally think of in English when we think about peace. And this is evident in verse 4. It talks about beating swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, that nations will no longer take up sword against another nation or even learn war. So clearly we're seeing at some point in the future the destruction of all warfare, of all military, of all violence. And the question comes, well, when does that occur? If the people of peace has already been a partial fulfillment of what God is doing is this prophecy of the reduction and elimination of violence also coming partly true today? As you may guess, I think it is. Now, when you look at the Old Testament, it becomes tough. When, the old, when you look at the Old Testament and what it says about violence, you can find passages that um, indicate God wants the people to go to war. They are a political entity, so they have to do this as a nation. You can also find places in the Old Testament that talk about the hope for peace and the desire for peace and lament the sadness of of being at war. Psalm 126 and 7, for example, says, Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. So in the Old Testament, you kind of hear both sides of the story. But what's interesting is when you transition to the New Testament, which of course at its center has the concept of Jesus dying rather than calling on legions of angels to defend him. And of all these prophets and apostles going to their death rather than defending themselves, you don't see that same balance. I looked through to try to find if there's any place in the New Testament that said something to the effect of, therefore defend yourself when this happens to you. I couldn't find any. 
But I can find quite a few that talk about the fact that we will, we need to avoid violence. So let me give you just a few of the ones that talk about avoiding violence. I turned to the wrong page. Let me try this again. Romans 12, 17 through 21. Paul says this, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For so, by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. More briefly, in 1 Thessalonians 5.15, Paul says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. It's precisely in the context of suffering for the faith and being persecuted and possibly even eventually killed for it that Peter says this in 1 Peter 3.9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may attain a blessing. And of course, the centerpiece, the one that most of you probably thought of first, if you're at all familiar with your New Testaments, you know what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 38 and following. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evil one. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So what's the practical application of this idea of non-retaliation, of avoiding violence that we see in the New Testament. In my view, I believe it calls us as individuals, but not necessarily as nations, that we are under solemn obligation never to retaliate, never to use violence, even when others treat us wrongly. Hence where I started this story. On the other hand, I realize that not everyone of good conviction and good faith agrees with me. I'm open to that. But you have to make sense of why the New Testament calls us to, be, to have violence done to us without doing violence back. You have to make sense of that before you answer this question. You need to wrestle with that. But of course, it isn't just in this extreme circumstance that hopefully, God willing, none of us ever have to face. But I think it can come out in personal questions too, in limited ways, in smaller things. When you were wronged, when was the last time you prayed for the person who did you wrong rather than wanting to get them back? Do you hate violence? Does it turn your stomach when you hear news reports of death and killing? Do you grieve over all deaths, whether it's an unarmed black man or a police officer? If you do use either real or simulated guns, I, saw, I see there's this tag event um, that's coming up and everything. When you do that, are you enjoying it as a sport or a game um, that's like tag or basketball? If so, great. I think it's fun. Um, but if you're doing it because you relish the power that it gives you, I wonder what that means. Is your hero Jesus or Rocky? So that's one aspect. Peace as the absence of violence. But the other aspect is actually, I think, the one that's more important. Peace as a fullness of well-being. You see, shalom, the Hebrew word here, it means more than just there isn't fighting between us. There isn't hostility. It actually means there's a fullness of goodness. When you look at how it's used, it means, um, 
It means everything from well-being to wholeness to harmony to peace. There are places in the Old Testament where it links peace to having a lot of fine wheat in your crops. Um, There are other places where it talks about it having plants that are growing greatly. So we see that this idea of peace is this sense of full wellness. And this is why from ancient times to modern, the standard greeting among Jews is shalom. Summer, as she mentioned when she was introducing me, is in my 8 a.m. Hebrew class. And every morning when they come in, I say to them, shalom. They look back at me and don't always seem convinced that this is an example of well-being and goodness in their life, especially on the days they have quizzes. But this is the greeting from ancient times that you see in the Bible to modern Israel. Shalom, peace, well-being, goodness. And I think this is also the aspect we have to understand in Isaiah too, because it is not simply the destruction of swords and the destruction of spears, but it is instead making them into plowshares and pruning hooks. This passage in Isaiah is actually, this is really interesting historically, and we won't get into what exactly is happening, but it is actually exactly replicated in Micah chapter four, one through three. And Micah ends after what we have in Isaiah by adding this, but they, the nations shall sit down every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Isn't that a great image? Shalom as getting to sit under your own tree, shaded during a hot summer day. And if you're hungry, you just go and you grab a grape or you grab a fig and you enjoy this process. This is the idea of shalom that we're supposed to imagine here. And I'll just give you a few stats to illustrate how big an idea shalom is in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Shalom, the word is used over 250 times in the Old Testament, and its Greek equivalent, erene, occurs 91 times in the New Testament. It is commonly presented more than 39 times, from just a quick search that I did, as God's greatest gift or one of his great gifts to his followers. For example, Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Very often, Christians are commanded to pursue peace or are seen, we see peace as a virtue. 23 times I found this just in a quick search of the Bible. For one example, Psalm 34, 14, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. There are in several places promises given to those who make peace. For example, we see in Psalm 37, 37, Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there's a future for the man of peace. Proverbs 12, 20. Deceit is at the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. James 3, 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In fact, one of the most common titles for God is the God of peace or the Lord of peace. You can find it 12 times, particularly in Paul's letters. God is the God of peace. So what does this mean or what does this look like? What does it look like to not only envision peace as an absence of violence, but also hope for peace as the presence of so much more, of well-being, of a community that's knit together and loves each other. I started with the story of 
What would you do in this hypothetical situation if somebody broke into your house? But of course, something like this has happened all too often in American history, even recently. But one interesting example, of course tragic, but the response is amazing, happened on October 2nd, 2006, in uh, Nickel Mines, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, with an Amish community. You may remember the story, but a man who was not Amish, but was sort of related to the community, came in, blocked up a schoolhouse, took 10 girls hostage, most of them preteen, all of them unarmed, obviously, and he shot eight of them, killing five. This is a horrible thing. In a little over 30 minutes, five lives have been lost, three others have been wounded, and the terror that came on that community, you couldn't imagine it. I mean, these are mostly preteen girls who were captured. Two of the girls actually volunteered to be shot first to try to protect their classmates. One was 13, one was 11. The 13-year-old died, the 11-year-old survived. In the midst of this horrendous thing, though, the community did what many news reports said was just an unnatural thing to do, what I would say was a supernatural thing to do. And on the day of the shooting, family members of the victims said, remember that we cannot hate, we must forgive. The community set up a trust fund for the family of the shooter to help support his wife and family. 30 members from the community attended the funeral of the shooter. They visited the home. They cried with his widow. Can you... I mean, I grew up in the days of Columbine. I remember hating the two people who did this on the day that it occurred. Can you imagine a community where your own daughter of 11 died and you went to visit the widow of the shooter. What an amazing community this is. This is such a real example of a community, a people of peace in our world. Now, again, this might not be the only response that Christians can do. In this world, there is real evil, real violence, real wrongs that are done, and maybe there's a place for violence in part. But with that said, we are the people of peace. We are that prophesied community that Isaiah has in mind in chapter two here. And I think that means we need to think about what it means to be a people of peace right now. What are you doing to further shalom? What are you doing to make connections between friends, finding broken relationships in the community, looking further out into our state and our nation, and creating bonds and um, bringing people together? That is what I want you to think about today. So as you leave, I'm going to dismiss you with a benediction that has been in ancient Israel for years. This is a benediction that the God of peace gave his priests to pronounce on the people of Israel when they came to the temple. And with this, I will dismiss you this morning. Number six, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom.